This episode of The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Hey, Craig. Welcome to The Backdrop. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? Good. Where do we find you this morning? Uh, you find me in the men's restroom at Nakoma Golf Club in Madison. <laughs> so <laughs> Love it. I, to get out of the wind, and um, I'm on a job site right now. So uh, yeah, just tucked in here, and hopefully you can hear me. You doing you doing some shaping this morning? What what was going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm not doing a whole lot of it, but I am here for the final push, and am yeah building a bunker right now, and and whatever. But we've been at this. Well, it's a the the golf course is is a neat old golf course um it's been here about 100 years right in the middle of madison um so downtown near the university near the city's arboretum so it's a really neat spot but it's a tough property because it's so low-lying and and wet so we've had record rains in wisconsin the last couple years and it finally got to the point where they decided they wanted to do a big drainage project so that's what we're finishing out here appears to be working so it's great but we're in a push to get everything grassed obviously so people can get back to golf you know yeah it's good to hear that there's still construction um that's that's happening during during all this and people are still moving forward well they certainly want to finish projects that they started and in fact (laughs) these uh, golf courses think that this is a pretty good time to be finishing projects because they don't have as many golfers which is right so uh, I, who can say what's going to happen, you know, in the near future here. Um, but yeah, we're fortunate to be finishing a few things that we started and, and yeah, we'll see. So. I was talking to a superintendent friend of mine who's, who was saying his estimate is like 30, 40% more efficiency out of his maintenance crew with no golfers on the golf course. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we should just get rid of the golfers. I think yeah. that's what that tells you. We'll get so much more done. The places will look great. Yeah. I did hear something interesting yesterday that a lot of our, so as you know, Matt, I'm kind of between worlds. We do, we have a management piece of the company, um, which operates courses. And then, you know, I guess the biggest part of what I do is doing what I'm doing now, which is uh, building stuff. But uh, we just had these conversations about spacing tea times, you know, the, the, the suggestions right now are to space them out as much as possible. So people aren't, you know, there's just less contact and what the early results are, all the country clubs are getting their rounds in faster, um, with better spacing. So we'll see if that plays out, but that could be one little thing that gets learned through all this is that if you give yourself an extra couple minutes, it might help pace of play, you know, which isn't, a giant surprise, but, but if, if we demonstrate that over, you know, the next month or so, that's something that we could carry on with probably. And yeah, you and I have talked about slow play and you know what a problem that is. So we're looking for everything we can to keep rounds moving. Absolutely. I mean, it's the same things going on in Illinois too. Yeah. Mandated twosomes right now, um, 15 minute intervals and no cards. Um, but we have yet to have a member play around that's over three hours and 15 minutes yeah that's funny yeah Yeah. and it's just been everybody's kind of you know during this time obviously it's just good to be outside doing any activity but people are saying what 
wow, like this, this felt so good and my whole day wasn't eaten up. And, you know, yeah. uh, I, I wonder about the revenue side though, from your position, I imagine, you know, the, the, the pushback on expanding uh, intervals or allowing for more twosomes and threesomes has to be revenue, right? Cart revenue and uh, getting more bodies on the golf course. There is, but that's what you maybe you learn from this. There's two sides to it. You can squeeze more rounds in, but it's going to be a bad experience. And um, yeah, I mean, straight by the numbers, by, by even pinching it a couple more minutes, you're giving up three, four spots a day, which again, in a private setting is a little bit different than a public golf course. But in either case, the main thing everybody should be focused on is how can we get happy golfers playing golf, you know, at a good pace and so that they will return. And that's what, you know, so ultimately that's what hopefully will decide things. But yeah, when you, you know, it's part of the problem at, at, at very busy municipal courses is that, you know, the spacing is so tight because there's such demand. So if you're sending people out every seven or eight minutes, you know, it's a recipe for people getting backed up. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes, but um, certainly worth giving up a few tee times if the experience is that much better, I would think. So. I, I would think, and it's got to be a longer term approach. I mean, in the the quantitative challenge there will will really be tough to uh, to equate to say, hey, if we have left less bodies on the golf course and they play faster, yes, we lost twelve hundred bucks in revenue today for not squeezing in those extra bodies. But let's talk about the, the how they come back. Let's talk about the member satisfaction. I think that would change things. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this a little bit, but, but it, I, you know, golf's not going away, uh, but there's certainly fewer rounds that are getting played. And in my mind, that means that you need to make sure that, the, that you're making the experience as good as you can for the existing customers that we have. So, yeah, I mean, there's no question that anything you can do to focus on getting people back to the golf course a third and fourth time a year versus just that, you know, one round or maybe two rounds that they squeeze in. If, it, if they have a great experience, maybe those existing customers we have come back another two or three times, and that's that's what we need. So, so we'll see. Um, right now, uh, it's been you know the we're all glad to be golfing. Um, you know, thankfully people can get outside, which I think is a super healthy thing for people to do, and and everyone's following the rules as far as I can see. You know, such as they are, and to the extent everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing, they seem to be trying, and. Um, but there's no question it's been, you know, you mentioned revenue. It's been pretty tough, uh, month so far, and it's only going to get worse because, you know, it's just a reality that all the banquet business is disappearing. People are, maybe they will rebook if something, if, if we get good news and things improve, but for right now, a lot of the clubs are going to have to rely on, uh, you know, the core golf business without, um, without the weddings and without the banquets and, and whatever. And despite what you might've heard from, you know, some people in the business, the, the food and beverage isn't always a complete loser. You know, I mean, a lot of places rely heavily on outside events and weddings and things like that. And that's certainly going to be, uh, you know, a challenge for the rest of this year. So we'll see, but, but yeah. yeah. Just get the golfers out there for now. That's what we're focused on. That's right. Yep. So, so we, being, we got a lot to talk about in a short period of time here. And, and, but the one thing that I always like uh, geeking out with you about is uh, your experiences in Scotland. 
you know, when, when we uh, first met in person, you gave me, I, I still regard it as some of the best advice I've ever been given. And, <laughs> and, you know, starting new club, it was inspiration from Scotland and Ireland and playing with golf societies over there, obviously adapted for American golf and how things go here. And, and I, I can't remember what, specifically what we were talking about, but you, uh, you gave me some advice. Do you remember what that was? I have no idea. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it was been that good. It, it was very simple. And, and you said, you know, when you're debating all these different paths and things to do, just go back to, to what's worked for a thousand years in Scotland and Ireland. Go back to your inspiration for all this. And, and that has helped me in multiple, multiple cases of trying to make decisions on what, what we need to do for our members. And so I've had a lot of inspiration there. I wonder if you could share a little bit of your inspiration from Scotland and, and Lynx Golf. Um, and that time that you spent over there. Well, yeah, now I remember that conversation. And, and what you and I have in common, Matt, is, is, and it's why, you know, I liked hearing your story is, you know, we both spent time over there and then had this experience of, in my case, unexpectedly being able to join. Well, I'll back up. I went to, I got a graduate degree in Scotland. I lit, went to college in Indiana, then got married, and then Becky and I, right out of school, went to live in Scotland for two years of school. And then I hung around to work for a while as she finished her degree. So we were there almost three years. And, you know, one of the best parts of that experience, well, it was all great, but, but one of the highlights for me was I was just saw a flyer at the university for golf club. So I called the number that was on there and found out that there, I, I played small college golf in, at Manchester College in Indiana, Division Three, we took it more seriously than it than it was. But you know, I think I told you, Matt. You know, at the beginning, we didn't always have five guys that had really played a complete round of golf and had really kept their score. So we would have to coach them on the way, like you got to count them all. <laughs> but I will say, at the end, there were some more kind of uh, after four years, there were some more real golfers coming through. At the but at the beginning, we were. Um, Pulling guys from the baseball team, the basketball team? Yes, yes. They're just guys <laughs> that could move it forward and count. So, uh, so, so anyway, but, I, but I, I thought that would be the end of college golf or anything like that. Then I went to Scotland, and I realized they had these golf societies or clubs, you know, and, the, and what would, we would call college golf is more of a, you know, club golf like you would see at a university here. Really informal, but still a, a ton of fun and organized by the students themselves. And so, so I just called them and they said, yeah, you know, I was a little bit older than the rest of the guys because I was doing a graduate degree. But it was, as you can imagine, you know, as we've talked about, it was a lot of fun. That's it kept me, playing, uh, kept me playing college golf. And we ended up, uh, you know, on top, I was over there to study golf courses. And that's what I did, you know, and, and went to see everything that I could. But at the same time, I got to play some competitive golf you know, in some really neat places. And, you know, you were telling me your story about, um, you know, kind of having that similar experience of realizing that you could, you know, you could have a, a club or a, or a, you know, it, basically, you know, it, the way you described it, similar to me in that, that you're seeing a different way to, to have a club or a, and in a golf society and and then when you come back to when you come over here you realize that very few people have had exposure to that and i think that's what we talked about is not i mean 
feel very fortunate that you're, 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 you know, you and I are both able to go over and immerse ourselves in golf and all those great things. But when you come back, the gift that you've been given is that there aren't that many people that have had the, the chance to do that. So I think what I was trying to say to you is just stick with, you know, keep going back to that experience because it's pretty unique. There's just not that many people that, you know, that, that have the fortune of doing that. And, and, um, there's a reason why it was such a great experience. And if you could bring even a little piece of that back here for people, I think it's, it's going to work and it is working for you because, you know, it's, 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 it's a neat way to, to, um, you know, find connections around golf. So. Yeah, the, those elements. <clears throat> it it was such great timing of of when you shared it with me, and it's helped out tremendously. So, uh, well, and that's just on the that's just on the golf society type thing, or the way that you might loosely organize this and whatever. Speaking broadly about Scotland and golf, it's almost. Uh, forgive me for saying this, but if you've played golf your whole life, it's a crime if you haven't gone to Scotland and if you haven't forced yourself to make that trip because you deserve it. And and you know it's kind of a, a bit of a cliche, but, but it, it, it really is true that what we have over here is our closest, um, you know, it's, it's, it's our closest facsimile or imitation of what they have over there. And it's a great game and, and golf in America is fantastic. But when you go over there, you have glimpses of what it was at the very beginning and you see why this, you know, why the sport has stuck around for so many hundreds of years. Um, and, and, and that's just reinforced on those trips when you go over there and you come back with different shots, you hit the ball a little bit lower, at least for a couple of weeks. And, you know, it just introduces you to all different kinds of things. Never mind just, just going from town to town and having a cool experience period in a different country. So, you know, those initial conversations that we had was just me trying to reinforce that that's a pretty neat thing. And, and the more you can do to, 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 you know, to bring that experience here and encourage people to go over there and all that is, is good. Yeah. The, we're trying to bring the elements of it here. Actually today, <clears throat> I think I'm talking to you slightly out of therapy for myself. Uh, cause we are, we are scheduled to be playing at, uh, uh I should be at Brora right now up in the oh. island <laughs> with, with this would, be, this would have been our first round. I'd be playing golf at Brora right now and then Royal Dornock tomorrow. So instead I'm talking to you in a bathroom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But yeah. uh, I, I, that, that experience, I mean, for me, even though I was young, I had played golf my entire life leading up to it, and I found it very humbling, especially on the return, in, in a way that I always thought golf was this one thing, and it was this, this very consumable, uh, big thing, and it, and it had to kind of follow certain elements to it, and uh, you get over there, and you realize a lot of that stuff was unnecessary, and and I was just wrong. I remember feeling that. I remember feeling like, man, I was wrong about golf. And it was like a second second start. So uh, it's hard to explain to people. But like you said, if you can have elements of it here, if you can go over there and experience it, it, it does make a big difference. Yeah. And both of us are saying, you know, to anybody who hasn't been over there, it really is that good. It really is just a ton of fun in, a, in, in every single way. So, yeah, it's... Um, yeah. And, and, and also, you know, as I'm talking to you, the thing I took away from our conversation is, boy, I haven't been back to Scotland in a while. That's long overdue. And that's the other thing, you know, for even for all of us who have been there quite a few times or spent, you know, extended time over there, you know, what's the, 
you got to make a pilgrimage every once in a while. And, uh, you know, as you, as you get older, I think those experiences change too. I mean, there's no question. Um, well, I was going to say something stupid. I think I actually hit the ball longer now than I did when I was there, which isn't very far, but <laughs> you know, as going back and playing that links golf over your entire life also helps illustrate something that's great about the game over there, which is, as you get older, you still are able to move the ball down the fairway. And, you know, I'm, don't get me wrong, Matt. I'm still a relatively young person. I don't want to <laughs> start thinking this way. But, but you do, um, you know, as, you're, as, as you evolve and your game evolves, I think your interpretation of the way the game is played over there changes. And, and, again, some of the things that are highlighted is that there's plenty of trouble in Scotland. Some people think that it's just wide open. There's no, you know half the time in a wet year when you're playing these traditional links courses, they have rough that's so out of control. You can't believe it. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily the, the, the version of width that we see in all of our modern golf courses, but, um, but it's extremely playable because a lot of times you're playing match play and you just pick up and whatever. But what, what strikes me as being, you know, the, the element that makes it so much fun and keeps people in the game is that, Generally, the approaches are open, um, and the run-up shot is just always an option. And there's a lot of short grass, and there's whatever. But you know, if I was going to put it to one thing, by default, most of the most of the greens on these very cool old golf courses have room in front to, to move the ball. And it's, de- it's democratic too, right? I mean, you can yeah. choose literally any shot. There's no right or wrong. Uh, you you have I always found myself thinking so much more over there because you had so many more options to decide how you're going to play it. Well, many, many options. And, and the other thing that, that, that is a big factor in that is that it's so windy on half the days or, you know, a large percentage of the days, windy and sideways rain and then sunshine and then more rain. So the weather is very unpredictable. So with that, you know, when that's the case, the golf courses, you know, have to be built to allow people to to force their way through impossible conditions, which means you know you can't you can't have too many uh, of, of some of the things that we have you know relied on in this country to build golf courses. You don't have you don't see a lot of ponds and you don't see a lot of crazy forced carries necessarily and things like that. So, so you know. If you're playing in Scottsdale, where the weather is quite predictable, you know, it introduces all these other things you might do to a golf course because you can, you know, you can always hit a seven iron 150 yards or whatever it is. But in Scotland, you might go weeks without ever even thinking about hitting a seven iron. You know, it's just not even an option. It's uh, so anyway, that's yeah, we could talk all day about about all the great things uh scotland what we should really be asking is when's the next trip and you you just said you are uh you should be there right now we're a year from today we've we've moved it back the same week so if if a spot opens up craig i'm gonna pressure you pretty hard man you you've been a member (laughs) of the club for a few months now and we haven't got you out yet okay i will uh i would i will consider that i might be the guy that shows up for two days and then flies home which would be terrible (laughs) <laughs> but that seems to be my style right now. Like um, a rock star. Like a rock star. Yeah, you know. right. No, like a guy who's overbooked. So it's, uh, I'm trying to fix that. Yeah. You were there for, you lived there for three, four years, right? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So we lived there for two years in school, and then I worked in London for a year, almost a year, um, on site for a contractor there and doing bunker renovations on some cool um, golf courses around London. So that's big so, time. Yeah. Who yeah. who is? And we'll get to your shaping and your your architecture inspiration. Um, but I'm who has better ketchup, the UK or the US? Ketchup. Ketchup. Oh. Well, um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I don't have a strong opinion on that one. Uh, I think when I'm there, I enjoy the ketchup for the novelty that it is. And you think, oh, this ketchup tastes different. And that's about the extent of my opinion on that. Okay. Well, I've, no, let me, let me answer Let me answer I like our ketchup better. Okay. So you're, you like sugars then? Yeah. I, 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 I think I, that's I, the I, I don't know if I could... Um, yeah, you know, obviously I ate a lot of fish and chips when we were there, uh, but we never, you know, I'm thinking back to that time. It's kind of funny to think about it. You know, we were so poor. I mean, poor as a student can be. It's not, uh, you know, we were we were fine. We were going to school and whatever, but we literally had no money. So we never ate out. I mean, we just never. So I actually remember those meals that we ate out uh, uh, pretty vividly because it seemed like such a big deal. And I certainly wasn't smothering that food in ketchup, so, <laughs> so I don't know. But I, but yeah, it's. Uh, I'm trying to think. What are the other things? The chocolate's a little bit different. The um, Coke tastes different. The vinegar on the table. A lot of vinegars being poured on things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you you worked through those courses, and I I uh, I wanted. We're going to talk a little bit about Lac La Belle because we got a trip coming up, and um, I got to play it. I think before we, we sat down last year and uh, like the, the Heathland close to a metro area almost, but like it, having some Heathland influence, you could feel it. And, uh, and I, I, I was not aware that you actually, during that time in the UK, you worked for courses um, near London. So what, what t- tell us a little bit about that. And you, as, as you get these projects now, where are you pulling your inspiration from a lot of times? Is, is, it, is it some of that early work that you did over there and some of the stuff that stuck with you? Uh, for sure. I mean, you know, some, some guys that do this, you know, that do this type of work have, a, have an absolutely photographic memory of all the holes that they've played and, and features that they've seen. And I have to confess, that's just, I've never had that ability. I, I envy that, you know, and I think it's, I, I know I'm just amazed by that. But, you know, I've never had that, but I've always been a fairly good collector of things and somehow, you know, maybe, I mean, I feel like I do a decent job of collecting experiences and things like that. And then somehow it comes out the other end, like you're saying, if it reminds you of that, it wouldn't surprise me because, you know, that was, that's, that's always been a big part of, you know, those are the golf courses I like. So now, you know, so, so I'm glad if that's, if you had that sense. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, if anything, it's just, it's, it's just trying to evoke a certain type of look and, and a way that the golf course plays that, that would align with, um, first of all, we're trying to build golf courses that probably remind you of golf courses that were built a hundred years ago. I mean, I think, I think anybody that's good at this is not necessarily um, trying to reinvent the wheel or anything like that, but, but is, 
you know, the, the seems to me the success over the past 20 or 25 years in golf course architecture has been a pretty strong movement towards building golf courses that look like they've just always been here. And, and, you know, you can't believe how finished and complete these, these beautiful courses look when they're, when they're, when they're built, but that's all, um, going back to a way of construction and just, uh, just a, uh, a, a philosophy of not, I guess, overcooking things. So, so that's, you know, and it's a long answer to say, we just kind of feel our way through it and try to try to come up with a golf course that, that plays great. And the other giant factor in that, is it depends who you're working for. So, you know, the person, the, the client obviously has, you know, to the extent they want to exercise it, the, the, the absolute loudest voice. And, and in any case, everyone who's starting a golf project, uh, you know, has their vision and, and for what they want to do. And when you're hired to build, to build the golf course, you got to mesh the things that, you know, your vision for what it is and make sure that you're hitting on all the objectives that, 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 uh, the owner's seeking to get. And so, so in the end, you know, I could say that, the, that all, you know, the work golf courses that we work on are, you know, are just spring straight out of my head or something like that. But there's a lot of give and take and there's a lot of reacting to. And I've heard Bill Core say this and it really stuck with me. Um, you know, when we were doing Sand Valley and he was just describing the way he worked, uh, he, he described him and, you know, Bill and Ben, he's done, he said this a bunch of times, but um, he described themselves as more as editors as anything because they have extremely talented people that are working for them, you know, extremely talented. And, um, you know, a lot of what they do is editing things. And I think that's, that's one of the main parts of the job is taking in a bunch of ideas and input and concepts and comments and, and different things from a bunch of different people and trying to work with that and make the end result, you know, better because of it. So, so anyway, that's, that's, um, that, that's how, you know, the golf courses we've worked on kind of end up looking and playing like they do, I guess, you know, it's a collection of a lot of loose influences. And the, the old factor is something I've definitely felt, um, in your work is that there, there does seem to be this classic, uh, maybe the classics time in the best word, but, uh, for a, a New construction. I'll, I'll use Lac LaBelle as the example. You know, we played construction golf out there. And if, if you could tell the grass is still growing in, obviously. Um, but other than that, it felt like this place had been there since the late 1800s, which it was. Obviously yeah. not in yeah. the same, same condition. But, what um, you know, that particular product, project was, was Lac LaBelle on your radar for a long time? Um, because of its history, because you being from Wisconsin, or uh, how, how did that come about? Yeah, no, not at all. And I'm I I didn't know anything about Lock LaBelle. Actually, I mean, I had um, I was aware of it because my good friend um, was the assistant pro there years and years ago, and met his wife, and so I'd known them forever, and I've I've heard them talk about their stories as having fun working there as kids and meeting and all that. So I, that's my only connection to LaBelle. And then, um, Tyler Morse and the Morse family is who ended up buying the golf course had reached out to me on something completely different about doing, a like a small putting green project for their, for their headquarters. 
and that their the company um, their company is Presswood Golf, and they've been in the golf business for a long time, making really nice um, recycled uh, plastics. I think it's recycled plastic uh, golf course furnishings, but they've been doing it forever. And, um, and not just to golf courses, but they sell it to resort resorts and, and things all over the world. So, but they, but their core business has always been golf and, and, you know, Matt, uh, Morris had always wanted to, to own a golf course. So what, what happened was they, they thought about doing a small practice area project for their, for their corporate headquarters. So I was talking to Tyler about that. Hadn't even really gotten anywhere with that. When a couple of weeks later, he called back and said, hey, we got approached by the town of, you know, LaBelle about an opportunity. And would you come out and walk with us and tell us if you think it could be any good? So we did that. And I'm not going to remember the dates, but it went from talking about a little practice area to um, to going and walking this existing golf course and say, what could we do here? And then, and then also the town was offering the opportunity to potentially move some golf holes over to a brand new property that, you know, that the, that the previous club had never had access to. So to back up even further, the reason that we were even having this discussion is because the golf course, if it was going to succeed going forward, would need a tremendous amount of drainage work to make it playable in a way that people would, would reliably come back and play golf because it had gotten through, I think a combination of just many years of drains failing and things like that as, as happens on every old golf course in a, in a tough spot. Um, and then not, you know, being able to regularly fix those things. And then also just the, the horrible floods that we had in Wisconsin, you know, we've had several very, very wet summers, you know, over the past 10 years, so the golf course had just basically been sunk. And um, so, you know, whoever was going to save it or, you know, take it to the next thing was going to have to do a massive amount of, of fixing. So those were what those first discussions were. If we were going to do this, could we possibly fix it? You know, and, and, and we did our homework and we went through a bunch of drainage plans and tried to figure out what, what we could, what we could do and then, and then walk away from the project knowing that it was going to work. And in the end, um, you know, with Matt, the owner decided that to do this right, you'd have to raise many of the fairways. You'd have to move some dirt. And, you know, I think in the end it made the holes a little bit better. We, we they gave us some freedom to do some things, but, really the, the, the main construction on the project, the giant amount of work was to raise these fairways three or four feet above grade, the really bad ones, so that we would know that, that the drainage problems were solved and, and it'd be good for the next hundred years. And that's, what, that's what's happened. So um, what started out as a talking about a little putting green turned into, could we do, you know, could this, could this even be fixed? And then that turned into, well, could it be really good? And what would that take? So then we talked about, well, maybe you'd reroute some things and, and, and Matt and Tyler had already studied it really closely. They had great ideas and we went through, and again, you know, you're just trying to sort through a few versions of, of the ways you might rearrange some things with the primary, primary reason being that, that if we had access, access to four, to land that could 
hold four new holes, and that's how we kind of were looking at it on dry ground, that would give us the flexibility to, to remove the four or five wettest holes on the existing golf course and get away from that area. So that, that's, you know, in a very short amount of time, we started to figure out what the constraints would be and what, it would, what success would look like, and it would take a, a large amount of construction, and it would require that we were able to get off the wettest holes. And all that came together. They, they negotiated a deal with the town. Um, and, and from those discussions to, to, um, when we actually started might've been, you know, three, four months tops, which is light speed for something like that. And, you know, we took out hundreds and hundreds of trees, you know, that was another part of the project. Um, I could bore you with the details of how we had to remove them because we thought we could burn them and then we couldn't burn them. And then we thought we could chip them, but the chipper got stuck and all this stuff. So we, so it was a very hard construction, but it went from, you know, could this be any good to how good could it be? And then, you know, in the end, we ended up building what is essentially a brand new golf course, um, on top of the old one, still touching on a lot of the places where the existing golf course you know, it was, but we rebuilt 18 greens. It's all new bunkers, all new tees. It's essentially a new irrigation system at this point. And, um, and in the end, a very playable golf course, you know, from one that was, that had become pretty waterlogged. So. Well, during our construction round, <clears throat> I'll mix up the holes because, um, and that's okay. Cause folks listening haven't played it yet. It's not open. Yeah. Uh, but there's a burn that was just such a distinct feature for me that I haven't seen um, pretty much anywhere. And it, and it just goes with the whole length of the hole. Like you'd see at Cruden yeah. Bay or you'd see at Carnoustie. And I, I just like, that is bold and, and really cool. Uh, but was it irrigation related? Was, Not, it, was it more? Uh, uh, well, so this is a good example of that, um, you know, where the team – you know, everybody's contributing to the project, you know, from the, from the first day. And, and one of the things that, that Matt picked up on the owner right away is we had these drainage ditches going through the golf course and they've been around a long time. And it's a very, you know, the golf course is, is right next to, um, Lock LaBelle. It's, it's just, there's now homes, but the original version of the golf course was literally on the lake. Now it's a bit, a bit removed from that, but you can still see the lake from any high point. You see this beautiful views of, Lock LaBelle, you know, it's really striking, you know, when you're, when you're up on a high point. Um, and so, but we had all these ditches because the, because there's not that much distance, you know, that you can tell that you're right at lake level as you're walking some of the fairways. So their solution was to, to, to run some ditches through the golf course and they work reasonably well. And Matt said, you know, I think this whole project hinges on what we do with those ditches it's either going to be a complete eyesore, you know, kind of disaster and take away a lot from what we're trying to achieve here. Or we, we try to figure out what the best version of this could be and make it a feature. And that required a tremendous amount of permitting and thinking through how we could do it. It, it, There was engineering to make sure that what, whatever we built was going to work and move the water in the same way and all that. But in the end, what it allowed us to do was, yeah, to build in some, some water features that, uh, you know, are, are 
serving the same purpose as those ditches, but have, have ended up, like you've said, to be a real integral part of the golf course. And, you know, one of the, one of the, what I think will probably end up being one of the features of the place is, is these functional ditches that were turned into something a little bit better. So, and, and in the end, they, they're, everything's working fantastically. The water's moving faster. It's cleaner. It's just a great result for everybody. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, it, it feels like they're there for the strategy of the whole. And, and then I started paying attention to the high points and I said, I think yeah. these are serving a very distinct purpose. No, those are ditches. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's it. Is that the technical but, term in the business? Ditches? That's, well, that's what I call them. Yeah. The, uh, but, but yeah, and that's, that's the same for every project. I mean, m- most of this, I can't remember who said it, or I, I think it was Pete Dye or something, but the thing that you always read is, you know, golf course architecture is disguised drainage or some version of that, basically. Like you're just trying to figure out how to move the water. And on a difficult site like that, it, you know, that's real construction. You have to be paying attention to what you're doing. And, you know, when you are blessed to be working on a f- completely sandy site, you know, it's, it, it, it literally is a sandbox where anything is possible. And you might kind of check to make sure that that water is going to get out of there, but you know, it's just going to go straight down into the ground. Anyway. So it, you know, that's, it, it, it's great for golf. I mean, uh, sandy conditions because it, because the ball bounces and the golf is so much better. But from a construction perspective, there's, it's also, it's not just, it's not a coincidence that the best golf courses um, are built on sand because the people that are building them have complete freedom to do some really neat things. So, so anyway, working on a tough site is another one of those constraints that you try to take something out of it and turn it into something good, but it's real construction. And we had to pay attention when we were building all those all those features well i think it's a a project that's still at least for chicagoans maybe you know down down south you guys uh it's still flying under the radar a bit and i think it's gonna really uh surprise a lot of people at how good it is craig and i'm curious with with so many famous neighbors now (laughs) in wisconsin where where do you think a place like that it, it falls where do you think its place in wisconsin golf will be you know, I have, I have no idea. I know that they, you know, the Morris family was committed to making it public. They wanted to, to um, build a great public golf course. Their thinking is that there's going to be an audience for that. And I, I agree with them because um, there's always room for something really good. And hopefully it is. Uh, but, 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 you know, the, the, uh, as far as the neighbors go, you know, LaBelle has golf carts. And, uh, and, um, uh, whistling straights and, and, uh, sand Valley and, uh, Aaron Hills was just a few minutes away. Don't have golf carts. So, uh, as much as, so, so you could, you could see how people, if, if the golf course is good, you could have a certain amount of people who are looking to, to add around to that, um, to their trips, but maybe might sneak in a golf cart round in there cause they, they, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of walking. That could be something that people pick on pick, or take advantage of. I mean, my hope obviously is that people will seek it out because it's a lot of fun and they just come back to play it on its own merits. And, um, I don't think they're hurt by being just a few minutes from Aaron Hills. I can tell you that wasn't part of the business plan necessarily or anything. They're just hopeful that they can be a cool place for local people to play golf. 
Um, there's plenty of private clubs in the area and all that. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll see what people's, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see if what we built resonates with people, but I, I think they're going to have fun and, and yeah. So I think so too. I, I, we're doing that very thing where we're it up nicely with Aaron Hills, you know, yeah. go get our, uh, go get our butts kicked at, you know, the big, the yeah. big, bad, uh, beastly us open venue. And then I just see it as so much fun and hanging out on the, they got a beautiful patio area they're working on and that huge yeah. putting green that ties into 18. I mean, I just see some dollars exchanging hands and drinks being had yeah. and really hanging out that, and enjoying it. Yeah. As we're recording this, we're in a uh, coronavirus uh, time. So, so I hope that, that you guys have the chance to be on that patio and all that, but, uh, but it's neat. They, they built a cool bar. They, they use the existing clubhouse, but they've renovated everything inside. So it's a completely different, they've moved everything around. They have a cool bar that never existed before that has, um, these windows that open up now, the walls basically open up their windows that, that open up. So you have open air kind of bar that's going to go right out onto that patio. And like you said, butting up against that patio is this giant putting course that goes around a neat old Scott's pine tree and whatever. It's kind of a neat spot, but yeah, I, our hope is that people will, even if they're not golfing, I mean, it's a cool bar. You come out and you, and you're with friends or family and you're having a good time on the putting green and maybe you're having dinner. So, I mean, again, going back to, you know, how they're, how they're thinking about it, their hope is that, you know, that putting green and the way everything is that people will find it and just think it's a cool spot to hang out, you know, period. And even better if they decide to play golf. Even better. Two, two last places that are also pretty cool. I gotta, I gotta uh, ask you about before we let you go. Um, one pertains to your, college roommate i believe fellow new club member bill welter and and welter's folly um we've heard the story from bill uh at our club championship dinner last year about welter's folly um let's hear from the 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 construction standpoint how did that how did that go down what was the folly and uh, um, and for those that don't know, I'm talking about Journeyman Distillery has one of the most fun Himalaya putting greens you'll find certainly in the Midwest. Um, but you were the you were the architect on it, right? Yeah. Well, it, this is another. So, yes. It, I mean, it, it. What my friend Bill has done in Three Oaks is like the most amazing thing. You can't believe it. If I know you've been there, but and probably a lot of your a lot of your club members have been there too. Um, it's in Three Oaks, Michigan, you know, in 2010, I think, ball back up. Bill's a high school friend, so we played uh, high school golf together. And Bill, I don't know if you play with him or not, is a fantastic golfer. He's, he played college golf. And, um, and he, uh, he was over in Scotland at the same time I was. So Bill's story is his family's in the banking business. Then that changed. The, the family sold the bank. So he was seeking something different to do. And Bill's brilliant uh, first idea was to go to Scotland. <laughs> you know, if you don't know what to do, then go to Scotland. And I think he had ideas that he would start a, a restaurant or, you know, a, a, probably not back at that time, but, but I think his, his thought was just to immerse himself in golf. But, it, but what ended up happening was I was over there married uh, in Edinburgh, um, 
going to school, Bill came over and uh, was going to play golf and and have an adventure, you know, and hopefully get some experience working at a bar and a restaurant and whatever. But but he was there to play golf and he did some caddying. He did some bartending and um, at the old course in St. Andrews. So he lived in St. Andrews. And the roommate part is this, this becomes a long story. So I apologize. But the, it's, it's all right. We want to hear it. The, Bill's roommate, or the, the guy that he met in Scotland, is Greg Ramsey, who's uh, from Tasmania. So Greg, Bill, and I were in Scotland at the same time. Greg, as Bill tells the story, Bill was washing dishes and they must have had some conversation about golf or something. And Greg looked at him and said, what are you doing here? You know, like, what, <laughs> what is going on? And, uh, and Bill said, well, I was just, this is the first job I could get and whatever. And I think if I'm remembering right, Greg recommended that he come over and get a job at whatever bar or hotel that he was working at. So he went from dishwasher to bartender. And then that's how Greg and Bill became good friends and then ended up, um, you know, getting a flat together in, in St. Andrews. So I would go visit those guys and we'd play golf. They were caddies at Kings Barnes and, um, and played a lot at the old course. I hate to admit this uh, publicly, but uh, I snuck on several times with Bill and Greg playing golf under someone else's student ID at, uh, <laughs> at the University of uh, St. Andrews. But I mean, in fairness, that's done with a, a wink you know, there, you walk they, up to the first tee and they say, uh, okay. And, yeah. and, and so, so by the way, anyway, we share we, that story. I I've done <laughs> the exact same student ID move and yeah. I think they knew before I even spoke. Yeah. I think, uh, I think if you're a well-intentioned student, uh, they, they just, they, they give you a wink, but, but yeah, I mean, that was a fantastic time and we played plenty of golf, not as much as we should have, but that's where I met Greg for the first time, Greg Ramsey. And that's where Bill met Greg. And Greg's story is at that time, Greg had identified some land in Tasmania um, uh, that was owned by, you know, a basically a, a non golfer, uh, a farmer. And Greg had propositioned him to say, This is fantastic. This could be the world's next great links course. And the guy, you know, wasn't necessarily convinced on that first conversation. And then somewhere in that Greg ended up back in Scotland. And, but the whole time we were there, he was telling me, we're going to go, I'm going to go back to Tasmania and I'm going to develop Tasmania as the world's golf destination, like one of the top best golf destinations in the world. So then Greg actually goes back and does it. You know, we were 22 or whatever at the time. And he's telling me this very clear vision for what he's going to do. And then of course, you know, we're both kind of working in golf. So we stayed in touch. And he, he did it. He went back and um, put together the funding and got the thing done. And, and the landowner was convinced to build the first golf course, which was built by Tom Doak, Barnboodle Dunes um, in Tasmania, which I don't know if you've been there, but it, it's, it's, I've done a couple trips to Australia and, you know, I, I just think it's as good as anything. It's just such a neat place. And, um, uh, so Greg does that, but then at the same time, he's also developing distilleries, uh, and, and, um, you know, when, the, when, when the bank thing was coming to an end for, for Bill, or it was clear that that was not going to be the obvious thing that he was going to do next. 
um, you know, I think it, Bill took some inspiration from Greg and, and said, well, what about, you know, what, let's talk about distillery. So then Bill went into a long apprenticeship, if you want to call it that, where he again went to over to Australia and spent some time with Greg and helping him set up a distillery or learn from what they were doing. And then Bill came back, I think now this is probably 2010, found a, an amazing property in Three Oaks, Michigan, after probably a year-long search of some cool building. But it, he, he, he found this amazing factory that used to make buggy whips and corsets. Um, for a teetotaling you know, millionaire at the time, that's who owned the business, that's the, you know, the, the strong irony in the way things have worked out. The, the guy was a staunch prohibitionist, and now <laughs> there is a distillery in his building. But, um, but it, but so he finds this remarkable place and then Bill goes on to, to start making this remarkable product. He actually starts distilling whiskey and, and who knew that my friend Bill was, uh, going to be a master distiller and, and, and make all of this, um, you know, what, what, what is widely recognized as just fantastic American whiskey. And he did it at a time when there weren't, you know, there were just a handful of craft distilleries. You know, it sounds like 100 years ago. It wasn't that long ago, but now there's thousands. But Bill was very early on in that and started barreling all this whiskey and all that. So he's, so he's done it right. And the end result, this is a long story, but the end result is he has this amazing distillery and restaurant business in Three Oaks, Wisconsin. And since 2010, they've expanded as quickly as you can imagine. And they're selling whiskey all over the country but then also have this remarkable restaurant and wedding venue and everything in this really cool old distillery. So what could make that better? Of course, a, a w acre of putting green in the backyard. <laughs> would be perfect. That's exactly what you would do if you had a successful business. You'd make sure that uh, you'd add something to it that had no chance of success. So, <laughs> so you ask what the folly part is. You know, Bill and I have been talking about you know, we're always talking about golf stuff and, and whatever. And, and, and it was his idea to say, what well, do you think we could do a cool putting green in the back here? And, and I thought, yeah, that would be just fantastic. And who else would do it except for Bill? We're claiming, and I think it's right, that it's the world's largest putting green that's not attached to an actual golf course. And I actually think we're probably comfortably in the lead there. I don't know. It's got to be. Well, yeah. That might be changing with people building these kind of purpose-built putting facilities. I heard that Tiger Woods is doing something. I don't know really what that is. But that's still but, like grass, right? A lot, a lot of the there's no astroturf out there. It's real grass. There's no astroturf. It's real grass. So, so anyway, he said, "Yeah, let's do it." And the the folly part is that it's probably a bad idea. You know, just that's a bad idea. But the to actually call it a folly is a bit of a um, well is a is a tribute to the George Crump story at Pine Valley. So a lot of your members will know the story, but, but uh, when Pine Valley was founded, you know, at the turn of the century, the man that, that had the vision and made that happen was uh, a hotel man from Philadelphia named George Crump. And it was his singular vision and dedication to the project that made it happen. I mean, he famously stayed on site in the tent and you know, to me, the most remarkable thing about Pine Valley is that, and I don't think there's really a parallel to this, even to this day, at the time, he, 
he was so must have been so well respected or was so genuinely um, just determined to make this the best golf course in the world that that he had the best golf course, the best golf course people in the world, all the best minds at the time at the beginnings of golf course architecture really is, you know, in this country, all of them worked at Pine Valley. And it's this amazing, you know, collaboration of a lot of different people driven by George Crump um, as an amateur architect, if you want to say that, or just, uh, just, you know, just the, the driving force behind it, bringing it all together. And in the end, they end up building something that was recognized instantly at the exact same time as they were building it as the very best golf course in America and possibly the world, you know, that was almost universal from the start. And it, and it's still that way. How long has Pine Valley been ranked number one in the country? I think there's been a couple, you know, hiccups in the spreadsheet or something that have, that have put it, I don't know, it's kind of bounced between a couple of years, but it seems like it's back firmly in, in, in at number one. And I, and it's hard to argue against that because it is really remarkable. It's just the best golf course in the country. So, so the point is, uh, we know that now, 100 years later, obviously, this is going to be the best thing uh, ever. But put yourself in George Crump's shoes, you know, 100 years ago, things were far from certain, you know, and, and, that, and that actually extends to not just building, you know, the world's best golf course, but being able to grow grass on that golf course at a, you know, at a time when things were not quite as sophisticated as they are now and getting the membership together and convincing people that this was going to work and all of that. And through all of that process and all of the hardships in building Pine Valley, the, the, the story is that George Crump essentially spent his entire fortune to see that Pine Valley uh, was built. And, 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 the the tragedy of it is that George Crump actually died before the golf course was was finished. So again, you know, some of these contributing architects then carried on that work and actually had to build three or four of the final holes. If I'm if I'm remembering the story right, you know, after he had already died. But the story the, the so for many people, at least in the newspapers, when they were seeing all this hardship, and I don't know when that when it was labeled Trump's or I said Trump. Crump, Trump's folly. Yeah. The Trump's folly is the pandemic, obviously. No, just. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Matt. We'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah. the, uh, the the but the but the um, you know obviously it, it wasn't a it wasn't a certain thing that that was going to work out, and people looking from the outside had seen this person who had spent his fortune building the golf course and had literally, it, it, you could say it had cost him his life because he died before its completion. So if that isn't the, you know, anyone looking from the outside would say, well, that's quite a folly, you know, in the end, that commitment that he had is what ensured that it would be the best golf course that anybody's ever built, you know, and, and, and his legacy is obviously will go on as, as long as we're playing golf. But at the time, it seemed like that was, um, you know, kind of a sad story. So yeah. anyway, for Bill, uh, it's just kind of, I think his, you know, kind of trying to make a, a bit of a joke, but also get people to maybe every once in a while tell that story of George Crump, which is just a remarkable one, you yeah. know, and, and um, 
So yeah, Welter's Folly is the same thing. It's certainly uh, not making him any money, let's say that. But I, <laughs> we have a kind of a running conversation to see um, if he can possibly break even on that thing. And I think it's nearly impossible, but we'll, we'll, he's a good businessman, so we'll see, what he, we'll see how he does it. There but it's real is. grass, like you're saying. It's, it's, so, so back to the – so anybody who's going, has been there or is going to go there, it's a flat farm field in Indiana or southwest – yeah, southern Michigan. Um, nothing really remarkable about the backyard. And then on top of that, they must have had what, what it would have been an old part of the factory or something buried right beneath where this putting green went. So the first scoop that I took out of the ground, it was all bricks and rubble and just horrible stuff and clay – and a road, there was a road that went through the golf co- or the, where the putting green is now. So in our first discussions, we have no budget, no whatever. And I say, well, how are you going to do this? And I had just gotten off the experience of burying topsoil at Sand Valley in central Wisconsin, which is all sandy. Um, you know, it's all sand dunes. And I know you've been there, Matt. It's a remarkable place. But everyone thinks, hey, did you guys truck in topsoil to build this golf course? No, it's the opposite. It was actually a giant construction project to bury the topsoil, you know, and what we ended up calling flipping. So you put the little bit of darker stuff down below and bring the sand up. So coming off of that experience, I show up at Bill's place and I say, well, we have bricks and rubble here, but maybe there's some dirt underneath. So I just started turning everything over. and, And what we ended up with was all the bricks and the concrete and all the garbage buried almost in a uniform layer beneath the green, which it turns out all that rubble drains pretty good. You know, it's, you just, Interesting. you're smashing it up and whatever, and it's kind of making a bed that, that drains. And then we put whatever dirt we could salvage on top of that. Then we drained it. And then we imported sand from a local guy and shaped out all the contours. And I think you know, it turned out pretty good. I don't think anyone is fooled to say that, that there's a, there was a little piece of lynx land behind this distillery or whatever, but I don't think it looks completely, you know, remarkably out of place. And, and like you said, it, it, it's on that scale of the real Himalayas and it's got a lot of cool contours and, 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 and people seem to really like it and have had a, a lot of fun with it. I think it's been, you know, it, it's great. You see kids running around. Of course, they're taking divots out of the green and, uh, you know, whatever, but, but it's just, it just gets more and more popular and, and people come out and they have a drink inside and then they, it's kind of hidden in the back. So they're just, they're just amazed when they walk out the door and there's this giant thing back there. And yeah, I think he's going to do putting leagues and whatever. And it keeps getting more popular every year. We had our, our club championship dinner was was there at the distillery, and obviously we're gonna spin around out there yeah. for a bit. And we had all kinds of matches going, and all of a sudden I just hear this voice over the over a fence, who's you know he's listening to us. He can tell that we're into a, like a best ball match play scenario. I think it was alternate chat, and uh, he's he's just saying the miss is long, the miss is long there, <laughs> and and we look over like who is this guy? It was it was Bill holding his kid. Just yeah. going for a short walk. I, I thought that was so funny. Well, he lives right there, you know, and uh, he keeps so his he eyes on it. He can he can look at that putting green every night. I Bill's now a master greenskeeper on top of being a master distiller. You know, I I'm telling him the whole time. You know, he's like, ah, how are we going to do this? That's ah, fine. It's fine. You just put some water on it. You put a little fertilizer on it. It'll be just fine. The less <laughs> you do, the better. 
And that's my version. The reality is that he's had some really uh, great help from some local superintendents who have, you know, generally the less you do, the better. So it's, it kind of takes care of itself, but it's beautiful, pure bent grass. It's real grass. And he's had um, Matt Schaefer, who came from Lost Dunes, this great superintendent who now works with us in Stevens Point. We, he took the job at, uh, for us, you know, up here. Wow. And I met him through the putting green. And then, and then there's been a, a couple other guys that have come behind him. Matt helped us build a green. But there's been a couple of really great uh, uh, guys that have lent some expertise and some, some hours to making sure that it's, that it's good. But Bill you know, as a little mini golf course owner has to stare at that thing and say, Oh, does that need water? Or, you know, <laughs> one time I, when I went out there, I saw one of his guys mowing. This will be a really bad story for anyone who didn't have a summer golf course job. But when you walk, take the walk mowers out to the putting green, they have wheels on them. And your job is to put the kickstand up and you take the wheels off of each side and then you go mow. And then when you get off the green, you put the wheels back on and then you walk to the cart or you walk to the next green or whatever it is. The wheels are only there for transport. So when I went there last summer, I saw Bill's guy, you know, who's, you know, God bless him, who's just trying to whatever. And he's mowing the green with these big wheels on. And I remember stopping him. I just walked up and I said, hey, I, you don't want to do that. You want to get these wheels off. And uh, he's like, oh, okay. And then we go over and I help him get the wheels off. And, and, and he goes and he makes his first pass. And I remember he turned around to me. He's like, man, that's way better. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that's cutting way better. That was the whole problem. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, um, you know, what, what, it's a ton of work. It's, you know, it still has the same pressures of disease and all that. You still got a little green back there, but he's making it work and, you know, people are loving it. So it's great. Uh, and it was a lot of fun to, to do. And I've gotten, um, you know, people comment on that green all the time. I mean, everybody in Chicago goes up to that place and they see it. So whenever, so it's been, it's been fantastic for me because people find out that I do this stuff and, you know, and so it's just, I'm just thankful that I had the chance to do it with him, but it's neat. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly what connected me to Bill um, because I'm there with a, a brunch and some friends and we're just getting food and drinks. And I look out the window and I see that thing. And immediate, my first thought being a golf obsessed junkie with all kinds of, you know, seeing the Himalayas and St. Andrews, I turn to our waitress and I say, is the owner here? I have to meet him. <laughs> I have to meet That's this funny. man because you just know that something's not right with him if he's building that in the middle of that, you know, oh, yeah. it's just, it's so fun. Well, I'll and, tell you one last story about that green, which is kind of funny. It, there was an old road that went through the middle of it and we couldn't get people to stop driving through the putting green. Like they would just keep driving on the old wait, road. After construction or during? I mean, in their defense, you maybe couldn't tell what was going on because it just looked like a bunch of dirt and whatever, but we were constantly getting people driving through. So Bill was like, I think we're going to have to build a barrier around this thing. And I said to him, no, you know, there's people are not going to, they're not going to drive over this. And he said, yeah, they are. <laughs> and they did. So you've been there, but what we ended up doing was cutting railroad ties in half and building almost like a fortress, like a wall around the thing. And it, it's kind of a cool effect. It's neat. It's a neat aesthetic. Absolutely. It kind of it gives you your own space inside. But really, those are traffic barriers. I mean, it's just it's essentially to keep people from 
from driving over it because it's really in the back of, in this industrial area and what. So anyway, once, it, it, once again, you put in Google Maps, you just go. You just follow where yeah. it says. If it says it's <laughs> that's right. right, I think that's actually part of it. Like I don't, I'm not sure I should be here, but the phone's telling me this is the way. So so anyway, that that is, is a ton of fun and um, yeah, it's. I, I, so I know I know you're on site right now and you got plenty of work to do, but there is one last hangout in golf that I have to ask you about because it bears your name, and that's Craig's Porch at Sand Valley. Uh, we could talk about Sand Valley for another hour and a half. Um, we, we go there every year. It's the site of our Founders Cup. We're probably not moving because we love it so much. Um, to have that type of golf in the Midwest, you know, for, for me and, and so many other of our members, it, it has become a very special place. So for you, Craig, what has Sand Valley meant to you? And give us a little bit of, of whatever time you have left, a little of the background on your relationship with that land. Well, um, well, I think it goes back to that. Well, it it goes back to that time in Scotland, and again, it goes back to being over there with with Greg and Bill, and getting to know and listening to Greg at 22 years old telling me how he was going to go back and turn Tasmania into, you know, one of the world's great golf destinations, and and him describing that, and I don't think I consciously, you know, had these thoughts at the time, but that was a giant influence on me you know, coming back to, to work here. And, and, um, we, well, at the time we were in Scotland, we had to pick a place to live. We didn't really have any attachments. And my wife was a botanist at the time. And she picked her, the, the plant that she was working on, that, that guy was in at the university of Wisconsin. So we picked Wisconsin. I said, well, I'll just get a job. And we, we came, we moved back to Wisconsin and I looked in the phone book for golf course builders, like the real phone book. This is, you know, 20 years ago plus. And, uh, there was one, Mike Oliphant, um, and Oliphant golf. And I got a job with Mike and was lucky to have some local, a lot of local work in Wisconsin for a few years. So that kept us here in Wisconsin and almost immediately, we didn't know anything about Wisconsin. We're from Indiana, but I hadn't really ever been to Wisconsin. And the thing that struck me was on some hiking trips with Becky, you could see that half the state was very sandy. In particular, you know, the central part of the state was just this, this was all sand. So I started, um, well, concurrently with that, I was working on golf courses, starting my career and doing this. And I just thought, well, if anybody's going to let me kind of design and build a course, I might have to go find it. And I might have to just do it, you know, so that's kind of how it started. And that's, that's, again, that's another folly for you. That's a very irrational thing probably to think, but I pursued it pretty hard and, and thought that you could never accomplish that if you weren't diligent about finding the right place. So I did that, that started a long time ago and then went through, um, you know, would get on, identify Sandy places and then, and then schedule travel around to look at all these places started in the southern part of the state there's some really beautiful spots along the wisconsin river many of them environmentally protected um but i started to see glimpses of the sand and vegetation and stuff that i thought wow this it reminds you of ireland or scotland or certainly the heathland around london and all of that so you so you're seeing all of these cool little bushy what what 
isn't a Heath plant, but what you recognize instantly as a golfer is like, oh, that stuff's neat. And I remember, you know, so started seeing that and just worked my way through the state, basically trying to identify what would be, you know, the best potential golf site. That went on for a few years, fairly intensely. And then I remember getting to central Wisconsin and checking out a few sites and, and the spot that eventually became Sand Valley is just south of Wisconsin Rapids and walking out into the middle of the sites all covered in trees. But for this site in particular, there were three or four giant dunes where everyone had had driven their, um, ATVs and off-road stuff, um, up to the, to a couple high points. So you get above the trees and see what it is. And, you know, I knew almost instantly that I'd gone from searching for a cool place to, okay, this is, if you can't do it here, then you just can't do it. And then switch to, okay, then now how do you raise the money and, and get it done and whatever. So to bring it full circle after many attempts and ra unsuccessfully raising money and starts and stops. And we got an option on the land with Mike Oliphant and kept the ball in the air for, for a couple of years. Greg was coming back over to the States to visit uh, and do some things. And he said, how's it going with that project? And I said, Greg, it's, you know, it's not looking great. And this was 2000, probably, well, this was 2012. So this is, you know, three years after the world ends, you know, there are not a lot of golf courses getting built. Our business went from building a lot of golf courses to literally zero, which is another side story because that's when I, as I told you, Matt, that's when I got into the golf management thing because, because there, we went to zero construction, uh, any building activity at all. But anyway, Greg says, well, why don't you um, come to Chicago with me? I'll introduce you to Mike Kaiser. And so Sand Valley, which is just a miracle that it happened, but it really only happens because of the connection that I made 20 years ago with one of the most remarkable people you'll ever meet in your life. And anybody that's listening to this should look up Greg Ramsey because he's the stuff he's done. And, and you should actually have him on maybe to talk because there's just a super interesting person, but, but, but he, um, he, uh, he was the introduction to Mike Kaiser. So we went up to Mike's office in downtown Chicago where he said, no, you know, I, he, he said, I only do golf courses with oceans. And there's no ocean in Wisconsin. And then, so I remember walking out and thinking, well, that didn't go very good. And Greg just looked at me and said, oh, no, 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 that was, that went as good as it could possibly go. You know, <laughs> that, that was great. So, well, Greg, it kind of sounded like a no. And, uh, he said, well, I don't know. I think it, I think he'll, he'll, he'll at least consider it. And he, and he did that. He ended up sending out Josh Lesnick from Kemper where I met Josh and went around and then Josh went back and told Mike, no, it's pretty neat. You should go see it. So Mike and his sons, Michael and Chris, who have ended up, um, you know, Sand Valley ended up being their project um, in the end. You know, they very much are, that's, that's what they're doing. And um, uh, they flew out and we had a walk around and somehow between that visit and, you know, the spring of the next year, they decided they wanted to pursue it. Um, Mike bought initially um, 1,700 acres, I think which is now expanded to something like 12,000 acres with conservation and all kinds of things. But, um, you know, one of the biggest pressure points for me was trying to decide which, you know, they're saying, Craig, which is the best 1500 acres, you know, it's a neat place, but we got to pick, you know, 
so so that took time and we're trying to go through all of that and then at the same time um uh you know we had our checklist of things that we were working through which included bringing out all of the golf architects that you could name you know all the all the people that would probably come to your mind immediately tom doak and bill core and ben crenshaw and david kidd all the guys that eventually ended up building the courses but then several others coming to weigh in on whether or not they think it could be great and all that and they end up closing on the land and bill core comes out and routes uh sand valley you know the original course and was extremely generous with his time and including um, Michael and myself, you know, were able to tag along with Bill as he's trying to figure things out. That was a fantastic experience. And anyway, in the end, yeah, I found the land and then they kept me on to, to help support Bill and Ben and to do at the beginning, doing a lot of things on the ground, trying to keep, you know, there were no people, there was no anybody. So, I mean, I was tour guide, project manager and whatever at the beginning, um, but then building the team to get these things done. And thankfully, you know, now we're several years in and I'm, you know, I still, I'm still working on the project. We're still doing stuff They're They're, um, they're, uh, well, we've started, uh, Tom's course, the, the third full golf course, the third big golf course there. And, and we're in a little bit of a hiatus right now with the, with all of the stuff that's going on, but I expect that's going to start back up. And, and so we'll have, from when they closed the land on the land was 2012, I think in the, you know, late in 2012 to now having what's going to be three golf courses, um, a par three course, a ton of lodging and this whole thing that has been built, you know, from, from a place where no one could have, uh, no one would have thought that that thing would pop up, you know, in the middle of that scrubby pine forest, but there it is. So it's a complete, you know, it's a, it's a 0% chance that it ever happens, but it does. And this is a long answer, but, but you asked about Craig's porch. Yes. I'm the Craig because that's because I found the land and um, in that spot where Craig's porch is, you know, it's, it's prominent right now. It's the first tee, the 10th tee, that's the snack shop and the bathrooms. That's the Craig's porch is right there. And it's, I think it's one of the most prettiest views in golf. I mean, honestly, um, it's just, it's amazing panorama of the whole property and it's just neat, but that was always the spot about the only spot that I could take people up for tours and, and whatever. And, and so yeah, they ended up naming that Craig's porch, which at the time I thought wouldn't stick and I thought it was very nice, but I thought, you know, whatever. But, but again, it's like one of these things that people, that, that it's like, oh, you're Craig. I think, oh yeah, I'm Craig. <laughs> but it's it's been so it's been fun. You know, it's been a lot of fun, but it's yeah, it's embarrassing to you know well, whatever. <laughs> well, it, what I've kind of started this these last couple of trips up there is uh, you know you you play golf all day and then I, I've been getting a quick shower and I will actually walk up to Craig's porch uh, during sunset and if they're still open in the the shack there, I'll get some of the best damn tacos probably anywhere in wisconsin or probably yeah. the midwest and yeah. and it's just so peaceful and it's beautiful and i, and I just i can't believe where i am i always yeah, forget where i am it's neat that spot you know they're selling tacos up there for like two dollars you know and the beers are two dollars or everything's very cheap 
So one of the neat things is it's just a great place to go have lunch. If you're, uh, you know, if you're anywhere nearby, at least at the beginning, before it was too busy, we would have large crowds of locals just coming up to have lunch and they'd sit down on the picnic tables and just watch a bunch of guys tee off. And again, it was just, it was neat and it still happens, but it was, you know, now it's a busy resort, so you have to seek it out. But at the time we just had these large crowds of people just having lunch and watching golfers go by. And it, it just, it was just really neat. And it's like, you know, a little bit like the experience you have in St. Andrews where you've got locals watching golfers. And so, so yeah, I'm, I, I remember Mike Kaiser, you know, senior saying at the time, you know, Hey, don't, don't fight this. Basically there, that Craig's porch will be a good thing. You know, it's a night, like people are going to remember that they, you want people to remember that you had something to do with this. And it's exactly right. I mean, I, that's people actually know that I worked out there because they named that thing after me. And it's just, so it's very kind of them to do. Uh, and I think it's, it's just a joke and, well, <laughs> to me. <laughs> the, the more, all these places we're talking about are some of my favorite places in golf. And I think it's, what's really cool talking to you now, Craig, is the confluence of these relationships that have led to these places. Like I got to get to barn Boogle dunes. Why? Because your buddy yeah. your buddy greg was was the one who had that dream and and so it's just it's it's really cool to me that um all these relationships have okay. been what built these places and uh, i mean you know we happen to be talking about golf right now but i mean as you know that's true in a lot of things i mean the connections in golf you know we happen to be working on golf courses so it's leading to more golf courses but that's that's true for it's just a it's it's a great place to meet people and and connect and the stuff that you're doing that's why i'm you know i've been so impressed with what you guys are doing and and um yeah i think you know that i wouldn't have been able to stay in contact with my group of buddies if it wasn't for golf just life happens and you just you just get away from it and um so it's been extremely meaningful for me to stay in touch with my friends from when i was a kid it's also like we're talking about now you know, those connections have led to every good thing in my career, you know, basically everything that was that, you know, I did out of a pursuit or passion for golf has worked out for me. So, you know, you try to remind yourself of that every once in a while. I've, I'm going to try to, I say this every year, but I'm going to try to play more golf this year, you know, not try to try to get out and play because um, I'm not playing very much golf, but, but maybe my new club uh, membership will inspire me to play more golf. I certainly, I read your newsletters and I try to draw some inspiration from the man. It's got to, got to get out and play some more golf. We'll, we'll keep, uh, we'll keep at you and we'll yeah. get you in there. Get some match play points. You got to get the match play points so you can go see your friend, Bill. All right. I'll, uh, all right. I'll work on it. Yeah. We'll, we'll be back there in September. So that, well, I'll make that, a goal is to get you out more often. Okay. Um, I, I've already taken a lot of your time, Craig. Uh, the one last question, because we, we touched on it briefly. You're a big fan of science, right? How do you feel of, of your fellow statesmen who, you know, protesting state capital this week and, and everything that's going on? Give me from, I feel like your household is just scientifically inclined. Uh, uh, well, parts of my household are scientifically inclined. My wife is the scientist. I mean, I, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, this, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the most, uh, uh, predictable or generic answer that a golf guy could. This is my position on the whole thing. I think it's good to be out playing golf. I think that that, <laughs> and I really, 
I actually believe that anything else, anything else that parallels that, that, that golf experience, which is hiking and walking and whatever. The only thing I'd say is when they started shutting down beaches and, and parks and things like that, I thought, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that's good because you got to let people have the few places that they can get out and be safe. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta give them access to that. So I'm glad to see those things relaxing and I'm glad to see golf courses kind of getting back at it because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on a golf course every day and it feels safe. It feels good. I see people, you know, doing their thing and whatever. And I, it, there's a, there's two sides of the equation, you know, staying inside, uh, uh, forever is not a recipe for great things happening. So, so that's my position is when you get a, when you get a spot where you can let people be outside and, and be safe, uh, let them do it. And, um, and golf happens to be one of them. Now I can't say that to people cause they immediately, they just roll their eyes and say, Oh, well, you just want your, you just want to go sell some hot dogs on your golf course or whatever. But no, I mean, it's, it's, it, I just think it's, I think it's a really good thing for people to be do for people to be doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our last time we were together, we talked a good bit about Elon Musk and, yeah. and all he says, he, he's sure been a, uh, quite an interesting fellow to follow right now with all this. Yeah. Give us our goddamn freedom back. That's, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends which moment you catch me. I can be, uh, I can, I can go off the deep end, uh, on all of it, like all of us can, but, but you know, that, that's, I, I'd say what's happening right now is about right. You got to have people out testing some things at the beginning. You got to have people that have to go first. So I know everyone can take, you know, say, Hey, we're not ready and we're not whatever, but at some point we have to get, be ready to get back. And through circumstances, which I won't get into, I'm living in Georgia right now, but kind of going back you know, we, we got away for the winter somewhere warm and now we're kind of hunkered down a little bit longer than we maybe would have, uh, been down there. But, you know, everyone's saying, you know, George is moving too quickly and all that. Um, but as long as people are aware and are willing to reverse course, if things don't go well, we should be thankful that there's a group of people that are willing to go out and, and test these things. Cause now I'll speak a little bit as a non-scientist, but whatever, things change and you just cannot speak with certainty about how this thing is going to react and evolve. And summer conditions could be the, the thing that it could be a gigantic factor. So you just have to always be reacting to whatever the reality is. And unfortunately on all sides, it's like, there's no reality anymore. You can't, you know, it's, it's, it's not just fake news. It's fake graphs. It's fake numbers. It's fake everything, you know, and it's, it's too hard for any of us to make, to make sense of. So I'll just go back to my original answer, Matt, which is <laughs> playing golf is safe and good and uh, it's good for you. So get out and clear your head. That's what I would say. You know, on, on the, on the Elon front, there's one question after we chatted last time and had lunch that I drove away wanting to ask you. And here it is. This is a very serious question. If Elon offers you a seat on the first commercial SpaceX voyage to Mars and he wants you to build the first ever golf course on Mars. Do, do you take it? Well, let me think about that. Uh, is my family going with me? Uh, you can take you can take the family with. You got to talk them into it, but you get you can take okay. them with. There's zero chance that will happen. But if I can, if they're with me, yeah, I'll go to Mars and build a little tiny golf course. There's less gravity, right? So it'd just be a little tiny, tiny golf yeah. course. 
Yeah, think about it. Walking. No, 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 wait. I got that wrong. No, you got it'd reverse. Be just, <laughs> it would be uh, it would be a hundred times bigger. I don't know what the what is the gravity on Mars? One third of what it is on I think it's something close to that. It's so yeah. You're you're, you're talking about, about mammoth dunes <laughs> times ten, which think would be something. Mega mammoth, mega mammoth dance. I think uh, the reason we're talking about Elon, well, when you when we first met in person, you were you got roped into picking me up from a Tesla um, uh, repair shop. Yeah, which was quite an experience. And one, yeah, I had, so I had Tesla on mine. So I was always talking about was I was like an evangelist for electric cars because it's pretty neat. But 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 yeah, that's uh, would I go to Mars? Um, yeah, I would. Uh, I think it's. I think it's fantastic what he's. I mean, the. Don't get me started. That's a remarkable person, and um, you know, we we got a Tesla car, and you can just see that it's the future, and you can see um, you can see, you know, there's very few humans that are as right as that guy has been over on the on just the the, the biggest topics. So the last thing I'll add is. When he says, give us our goddamn freedom back, you might want to listen to that, too, because there's a guy that has figured some stuff out. So I'll just leave it there, Matt. He's, uh, he's a credible source uh, or a credible voice on a lot of things. So he's, he's, he's ready to go. He's ready to make some cars. Yeah. Well, I, and I hope he it's does. It's slowing him down. He, it, this whole thing is slowing him down from getting to Mars. That's The clock Progress. is ticking. Progress. Multi-generational goals. Mine, getting you to play a little bit more golf and you know maybe – getting a Craig Haltom uh, signature golf course on Mars. Just little things. Yeah, I think, I think uh, I'm up for it. I, it the people on Mars may not have a lot of free time, but, but maybe they do. Who knows? We, we'll find uh, out. Who knows? But yeah, thanks, Matt. It was a lot of fun. Great. This was a blast, man. I, I love catching up with you, and uh, we'll, we'll be talking to you here soon. Yeah, we'll golf this summer. I, we'll do it. Okay. That sounds See good. ya. All right, Bye. see you, buddy. Thanks.